So the Apostle Paul, as he is wrapping up his letter to the Roman church, interrupts this series of greetings with this final admonition. And he gives two commands in verse 17. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Avoid them. So watch out for false teachers and avoid them. And I don't know, for me, at first reading the first time I read this passage, I was kind of thrown off by that command. Uh, does it seem contradictory to anyone else here? It's, Paul's basically saying, hey, Romans, anyone who is out causing division, watch out for them. And if you find them, divide from them. I don't know, for me, that felt a little bit like when a parent responds to a child who has hit someone by smacking them upside the head and saying, we don't hit. You're like... And then what about all the other instances in scripture that talk about unity? I mean, even Jesus prays for unity among his church, a unity that reflects the perfect unity of the Trinity in John 17. So what is Paul talking about? And I think the distinction here is in the type of division that is created. Paul is warning the church to watch out for false teachers, those who create division by teaching that is contrary to the essential apostolic doctrine that the church was founded on. For Paul, the line of division for the church is sound doctrine. This is what forms kind of a perimeter fencing around what it means to be a Christian, around the church. This is how we understand who's a Christian and who's not, are these essential doctrines that Paul's saying to divide on. And we have to have some sort of definition to do that, just to function as a church, just to know who is the church and who's not. Because that helps us understand our relationship with those people. If they're not part of the church, we evangelize. If they're part of the church, we have a different expectation of them on how they should live. And so we find these markers of orthodoxy in Scripture, and they're so essential that Paul warns the church to avoid anyone who comes bringing a different doctrine that creates obstacles towards unity in the church. Now I do wanna pause here to acknowledge and say that we do need to leave room to love our enemies. We don't get to ignore those scriptures when it comes to someone who is divisive regarding the gospel. Avoiding doesn't mean that we stop caring for or praying for or even talking to them. We are called even to love those that persecute us. So avoiding means that the relationship has changed. And this is kind of where things like church discipline come into play, where we make a clear change in a relationship we have with someone who is living in contradiction to the gospel. And we do that with the desire that they actually recognize their contradiction and hopefully cause them to realize they're in peril and that they repent and return back to the church. So I don't want you to think when you say avoid that we should ignore people and cast them off. That would be to not take into account other scriptures that say to love our enemies. You also may think when you hear the word false teachers, those who are outsiders, people who are coming with different philosophies, different religious worldviews, and they're coming to corrupt the church. I think probably in America, in our culture a little bit, the, the, the church has a little bit of that thought, that kind of cultural war thing of we're fighting against the outsiders. I don't think that's who Paul's really talking about here. He indicates in verse 18 that it's something a little bit less obvious. 
Because he does warn and say that these people do not serve our Lord Christ. And that to me indicates that these are people who are coming claiming to be followers of Christ. But in fact, they're idolaters. So idolatry is the misordering of priorities. It's making something other than God and what God says is important a higher priority. It's a misordering of the priorities that we have. And so Paul talks about these false teachers. It says that the, uh, the Greek is great here. It says they actually serve their own belly. So they feed their pride by claiming to have special gifts or knowledge. Or they've made a second, secondary doctrine too important. Or they've made an essential doctrine less important. But whatever it is, they found some sort of hobby horse and they are riding it. And they are leading those who are willing to follow that idol straight into apostasy. John Piper, talking about this passage, says that false teaching is not just a matter of intellectual mistakes. This isn't someone who's made a mistake when they read something, but it's a matter of idolatry. And it's rarely obvious. Paul says false teachers gain a foothold by smooth talk and flattery, and they deceive the hearts of the naive. They don't come walking in through the back door saying, reject Christ have a pentagram carved on their forehead or something, it'd be obvious. They come in with flattery. They come in with smooth talk. They may say something like, I'm just here to change hearts and minds about this specific topic. False teachers in our day may have been published. They might have a lot of social media followers. They might speak it conferences that you're familiar with. They might lead large churches, talk about lots of baptisms. They even sound Christian. I'm not going to name names. I want to, but I'm not going to. But the idea is that it's, it's sneaky. False teaching is not some giant tidal wave that you can see coming from miles away that just overtakes and forcibly knocks you off your path of faithfulness, where you're like, well, I couldn't help myself with that. What was I supposed to do? False teaching is a siren song that seduces you into the rocks. It seduces you to your own destruction. The most dangerous false teachings are the ones that are the closest to the truth. We see that throughout Scripture. And so I'm just going to start with, I think, the first and most obvious one. That's in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you should not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the women saw that the tree was good for food 
And it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her. It's often overlooked. Who was with her? And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And it's just a downhill slide from there until the Gospels. False teaching is seductive. You see this in this passage. The serpent deceives Eve by questioning if Eve really understood what God had said. No, no, no. I I have a better understanding of that. I have some special knowledge. He even goes so far as to say that eating the fruit will make you more like God. What's wrong with desiring wisdom? But do you see how that becomes idolatry? Do you see how the desire to be like God and to have wisdom now has become more important than obeying God and doing what God said and keeping God in control? Being more like God and having wisdom became more desirous than obedience to God's sovereignty and submitting to his wisdom. It was a seductive desire that felt godly. I think all of us can probably think of other examples where you've seen things like this where you're like, man, that, that feels like it's the right motivation, but it just doesn't quite sound right. Sometimes false teaching is going to feel godly. And so Paul, in this context, he's not writing to a church that has massive issues with obedience. This isn't the Corinthian church who's wild. This is the Roman church. In fact, they seem so eager to be obedient to God that they had actually gained a reputation throughout the Christian world. And this is not in an era where there was Twitter or something to spread this out. But their obedience was so well known that it had spread throughout the rest of the Mediterranean to the other churches that they knew that the Roman church was eager to obey the gospel. But I think in that eagerness to obey, that might be where Paul sees them susceptible to being deceived. In their desire to be obedient to what God is telling them to do and to follow after God, if they don't have a firm foundation, they have a desire to obey without remembering what their sound doctrine is, what they were founded on, it's perilous because they're going to be able to chase after things and think they're being obedient because they've forgotten the foundation they stand on. And that's what sound doctrine does. It provides a firm foundation that faith is built on. It's like the man who builds his house on the rock rather than the shifting sand. Our faith must be built on the sure foundation of the gospel. Not shifting sands of different philosophies, different ministry styles, different music styles, different cultural feelings in churches, different cultural tides outside the church has to be built on the gospel. I think that's why Paul in verse 19 admonishes the church to be experts in good but beginners at evil. He wants them to be experts at what is good in the doctrine. and wants them to be innocent or beginners at what is evil. So what Paul's saying there, the primary responsibility of a Christian 
is to be wise when it comes to the essential things that make you a Christian, the foundational doctrines of the gospel. Our job is to study and to intimately know what is good and godly so that what is evil is apparent to us because it is not what we already know. I don't know if you've ever opened a jug of milk that's gone bad, but you know. You don't have to think about it again. You don't have to go, I have to ponder, is this safe? You don't have to look at the date, you know. You open it, that smell hits you, you know. We're not called to be experts in evil. We shouldn't dabble in questionable or false teaching so that we can refute it. See, that often uses an excuse. Well, I want to know what they believe so I, can, so I can refute it. Because Paul warns, false teaching is seductive. Don't mess with it. We don't need to become experts in false teaching so that we can defeat it. Paul tells us that in verse 20. Defeat's already assured, and it's not going to be us that does the defeating. The God of peace, the God of unity, will fulfill the promise made in Genesis 3.15, and he'll crush Satan and all his agents underneath the feet of the faithful. God's going to defeat false doctrine. He's going to use us. We get to be a part of it. That's awesome. But God's the one that gets the defeat. The responsibility isn't on you to do the defeating. The responsibility is on you to know who God is and to obey him. We don't need to worry about defeating Satan because God will defeat him. We need to worry about being faithful to the gospel that's been given to us. So I would say, and some of you know me, this statement isn't gonna surprise you necessarily, that you and I need to be very concerned with maintaining the doctrinal purity of the church, knowing victory over false and deceptive teaching is assured. We need to be concerned about having good doctrine because we know that false doctrine is going to lose, that God is going to destroy it. We're called to be wise to what is good. Like a bank teller who trains to identify counterfeit currency by handling the real deal over and over and over and over and over, we should become such experts in what is real and true that when we encounter false teaching, we recognize it like that, and we avoid it. This means growing in the knowledge of the doctrine is not a practice that is reserved for pastors and seminarians. I'm already anticipating some of your thoughts. You're like, yeah, but you like work for the church. That's your job to care about doctrinal purity. But it's part of the life of any follower of Jesus. And a growing understanding of God's word and the gospel is not simply for your own edification. And this is where I think it's important. I think I'm guilty of being really concerned about sound doctrine and defending doctrine. I think where my tendency might be to mess up at is here. And that's not just for my own personal edification or sanctification. And if I view it as that, then I become in danger of fueling my own pride, which is gonna lead me down a path of becoming one of those smooth-talking people that feed their own belly. It's not for my own personal sanctification and edification, though those are things that happen, but it's for the good of our entire family, our fellow family members of the faith. 
So years ago, I was about to begin seminary, and I was talking with a youth pastor that I worked with about how excited I was to be starting seminary. I especially noted, because I'm a nerd, that I was really excited to learn Hebrew and Greek. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. So I could study the meanings of words in the original language for myself. I was excited, couldn't wait. And my friend gave me a response today that I still can't quite wrap my head around. He said, yeah, I'll just let the guys who write commentaries do that for me. Let me remind you, this is a youth pastor. And so don't get me wrong, uh, most people who write commentaries, in fact, all people who write commentaries, have forgotten more about Greek and Hebrew than I'm ever going to know. And their insight is immensely helpful. But my friend essentially shrugging his shoulders at taking time to understand what God's word really said just still confuses me today. It's not an argument for everyone to learn Greek and Hebrew. I don't recommend it, quite honestly. (laughs) But if your default posture is just, well, I'll listen to what other people say about the Bible. Do you see how that might make you susceptible? might put you in that category of naive and being lured away by false teachings. We should be like this group of Christians in this place called Berea that we read about in Acts 17. It's just a, it's a really short section. But it says uh, that they eagerly listened to the word that was brought to them, and they daily examined the scriptures to see if what they had been taught was true. Oh. That seems like that makes sense, right? I mean, listen to other teachers, read commentaries, but start at the primary source and make sure that things line up. Make sure that what you're hearing comes from the sure foundation of the gospel. And it's important, too, to note this admonition that Paul's writing. It's not just to the elders of Rome. It's not to the pastors at Rome or an individual person, it's the entire Roman church. So that means when we read Romans, he's writing to the entire church. Elders surely are called to act as under-shepherds under Jesus, protecting the people entrusted to them, being on the lookout for wolves. But that doesn't take personal responsibility away from individual Christians to continuously pursue a deeper knowledge of the gospel. And if you're wondering, well, how much do I need to know? How far do I have to go? Just keep going. There's not a line that you get to a point and go, now I've got the gospel figured out. It's one of the great mysteries of scripture, I think, and of what we believe is that in some ways it's so simple, but yet the more you kind of pull out, the deeper it gets. And while it is each person's responsibility for their own faith, it's not something that's meant to be done in isolation. God has given us a community of fellow believers to guard us from our own deceitful heart and our heart desires to create idols. And beyond just this local community, when I say God's given us community, I mean in here, in this room, look around. God has given all these people to us for us to help to grow and understand what the gospel really is, to make sure we're on a sure foundation, to make sure that we are not easily drawn away by false teachers. 
But beyond our local community, we have the church all around the globe. Transcends nationality, tribe, or language, and it transcends history. We have 2,000 years of church history to benefit from. That is awesome. That is a lot more than the first Christians had in Rome. It's really unlikely that some new idea you say today about Jesus is actually new. And we can benefit often from looking back in church history and seeing how the church has already dealt with and defended various heretical beliefs. And so again, each of us need to take a personal and individual responsibility for doctrinal purity in our own lives and in the church, but we must do it together. Do you understand that, that, that pull back and forth? This isn't a Lone Ranger thing where you have to know everything on your own, but it is your responsibility to make sure that you do know something and then you're not just kind of like cruising along, like, oh, I'm around everyone else, I should be fine. As each of us focus on the gospel and understand the gospel better, we're gonna find that the unity that God desires for his people. And that's where these two things go hand in hand. I think, again, this is where maybe I miss it, where I've missed the importance of doing this in a group, in a community, is that in spending time understanding the gospel, talking about the gospel with other people, is that it's going to create a unity. You know why? Because if we're talking about the gospel and what we have in common in the gospel, what are we not talking about? We're not talking about the things we don't agree on. We're not talking about the fact that we don't like this or we don't like that or we don't like this candidate or that candidate. We're talking about things that we know for sure are a solid foundation on which our faith is, is built. Not to say that we don't talk about those things, that we ignore them, we act like everything's fine. And so this is where I want to talk to people like me who trend towards the doctrinal purity side. Um, the guys that tend to, to if, if left to my own devices, I would be reformed and angry about it. Don't lose sight of the reason for knowing and understanding God's word is to cause us to gaze upon the gospel and worship. If you learning more about the gospel doesn't cause you to worship, you're not doing it right. We're created to worship Jesus. We're created to worship Jesus together in community. We're not called to be bouncers on the fringe of the church ready to defend every little question and, oh, I don't like that. No, oh, you use an electric guitar, you're out. No, we don't do that. That's not what we're called to do. Those aren't the things we divide over, which is good. I actually didn't even realize we actually have an electric guitar this Sunday. We're good, it's good. I'm not, we're not gonna chase out and out the building. I have to be careful not to let my personal theological convictions, which I hold really strongly, be moved into the category of essential. I can't make my convictions the gospel. Don't become a false teacher by idolizing your own theological hobby horse. And even if you don't have the influence of some of the false teachers that we can think of today, you have enough influence to become a false teacher to deceive yourself and lead yourself astray. To those of you on the other side who are more friendly than I am, the ones who trend towards unity. Don't ne neglect to think about what it is you're actually unified around. Make sure those are the right things. Because anything besides the gospel alone, it's not Christian unity, it's something else. If you unify around something that's missing even one aspect of the gospel or has added something to the gospel, 
you are susceptible of being taken away by false teaching. Don't become naive to the gospel so that you're an easy target. And again, this doesn't mean we're going to have some ideological utopia where we all agree on everything. Paul's already left room for personal convictions, as we saw in chapter 14 of this book. But for there to be unity, there has to be some core doctrines that we do agree on and that we won't be moved from. As we focus on and rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ about the good news for hopeless sinners, that Jesus paid the debt of sin and by grace through faith gives us his righteousness, we're going to find a deep and unshakable unity that's going to survive the tensions of varying convictions and preferences. By being wise to what is good, we will build unity with each other and establish clear boundaries for the people of God. Now the reality is these boundaries will rarely be popular with people who reject Christ and false teachers looking to deceive. As Paul said, typically the false teachers are the ones who show up being winsome and friendly and smooth talking and likable. Often they're the ones that will accuse other people of divisiveness. And despite the opposition that will inevitably come, we carry on because we're unified in Christ. We're trusting in the fact that the Holy Spirit empowers us and reminds us knowing that Satan, one, has already been defeated by the death and resurrection of Christ, that he's currently being defeated by Christians who proclaim Christ's victory, and three, he will suffer a final and decisive defeat when he is bound and thrown into the lake of fire at final judgment. Okay, I'm excited. You're not. I'm gonna remind you, he's already been defeated by Jesus. He is currently being defeated by us proclaiming the gospel, and someday he's not gonna have a chance to deceive anyone else ever again. All right, good enough. There we go. There's going to be a day of judgment for those who rebel against God and against his people by bringing division into the church through false teaching. Speaking of those uh, theologians that are smarter than me, a guy named R.C. Sproul wrote it this way, and I'm just gonna read it. He says, there's a great emphasis in the New Testament on maintaining the unity of the body of Christ. Many times in church controversies, if somebody protests an action or a teaching of the church, they are immediately silenced with the charge they are being divisive. But Paul says here that the, one who causes, the ones who cause division and who upset people's faith are those who go against the apostolic teachings. Let me say that again, I stumbled over that. But Paul says here that the ones who cause divisions and who upset people's faith are those who go against the apostolic teaching. When apostolic teaching is attacked within the church, it is our duty to stand up for the truth of scriptures. And if a division comes as a result of it, the cause of that division must be laid to rest on the shoulders of those who deviate from the apostolic truth. It is not just a case of deciding who is the majority and who is the minority. Those responsible for dividing the body of Christ will be judged by God, and that judgment will be against those who have departed from the apostolic teaching. If you are ever involved in bringing division in any way in the body of Christ, you would better make sure, very sure, that you are standing on the side of the scripture and not against the scriptures. So practically, how do we ensure that we are on the side of scripture and that we become wise to what is good? Well, the first and obvious answer, you can already probably guess, is we need to spend more time reading God's word, meditating on God's word to us. 
But as I mentioned earlier, though we do have an individual responsibility, we don't do this in isolation. We do this in the context of the community of the church that God has placed us in. Brandon, I hope I'm not stealing all your thunder today. We have a great opportunity for you right now after church with our RCC University seminar to study God's word and to learn the value of reading God's word together. Other really easy practical things, get involved in Bible studies when they're offered. Or start your own. Find two or three people here that you know and start a Bible study. Take advantage of all the stuff we have available to us from church history. From big works like the Westminster Confession of Faith or the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, depending on what side you want to be on that. But you'll find they agree a lot more than they disagree. Read about the early church councils. Very exciting stuff, I know. You're probably rolling your eyes, but it's true. It's actually crazy some of the stuff they did in the councils. But read about those councils and understand what are those essential unifying doctrines? What are the things they actually thought about that we still hold fast? We've already partially sang and we're going to recite one of the historic creeds at the end of service today. It's another great way to see what did the church think throughout history is the important things that we need to know for someone to be a Christian. We have the stuff available to us. We just have to take that individual responsibility to do it and to not do it alone. That's the point. The point is take personal responsibility to understand the gospel, but don't do it alone. So church, that's, that's what I hope for us. I hope that's what we are known for, that we are a church that is known for being wise to what is good and being innocent of what is evil. Let's pray. Father, there's so much about you and what you do that I can't wrap my head around. But I'm thankful that you show us grace by giving us your word and that in your word, it teaches us all we need to know to live in obedience to you. Thank you for the mercy that you show us by giving us Jesus' righteousness while he took on our punishment. I pray you help me and you help all of us through the Holy Spirit to take seriously the teaching given to us and that our fixation on the glory of your gospel, we would find unity with each other and that we'd be able to help each other avoid being seduced by false teaching. Protect your church, not just here at Roosevelt, but throughout the world and that our unity would bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.